This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. It's been almost four years since 17-year-old Claire Davis was murdered by a fellow student at a suburban Denver high school. Now, Colorado school districts are facing one of the consequences of that. Under a state law, schools could now be held liable and face financial damages if they fail to prevent shootings, assaults, or in some cases, sexual crimes. But some people charged with implementing the law say it's ambiguous. I'm joined by Chris Harm. She's director of the state's Colorado School Safety Resource Center. She was on the committee that was created when the law was passed to study school safety and how to prevent school violence. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Let's start by dissecting this law a bit. It says districts can be sued if they don't exercise, and these are important terms here, reasonable care to prevent reasonably foreseeable violence. That's specifically three kinds of violence, murder, first-degree assault, or felony sexual assault. What does reasonable care mean in this case? Unfortunately, that has not been defined by anyone to date. So how would you define it? Well, we hope, first of all, that schools have abided by the Safe Schools Act and have put in place everything that is involved in the Safe Schools Act. And I think most of our school districts have taken care of that. And the Safe Schools Act requires what? It requires that they have a safety plan, that they think about bullying on campus, that they think about threat assessment, and that they do everything that they can to protect students and staff. So clearly there's some ambiguity here, but give me some idea of what the committee discussed. What are things districts could do that could show more reasonable care? I think one of the things that the committee um, spent a lot of time on and is something that I think most districts realize that they have a responsibility to take care of is to have a threat assessment team. That was a lot of what was in the commissioned reports about what happened at the Rapaho High School incident as well as um, a lot of the time that was spent on with the 214 committee talking about threat assessment. And this is the committee that you are on. That's correct. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, threat assessment teams. Some teachers have actually decided to arm themselves, which is legal in Colorado in some cases. We'll hear more about that in a moment from CPR's Jenny Brundine, who has a story. But would arming teachers help meet the requirements of reasonable care? I'm not really too comfortable commenting on um, schools that arm themselves. I certainly understand why some of our rural schools are doing that because the response time in some of our rural communities could be up to 20 to 30 minutes before law enforcement can come. But I don't believe that that was the nature of um, the Claire Davis Act. When Governor Hickenlooper signed this bill, Claire Davis's mother said, and I'm quoting here, we now have a path that will enable all of us to change the direction and the culture in Colorado schools. And one of the bill's sponsors, then Senator Bill Cadman, said school safety and the safety of those kids can no longer be an afterthought. Will this bill improve school safety by making schools more accountable? Well, I think our schools have taken school safety very seriously to begin with, even prior to this bill. And unfortunately, I don't think the bill is going to um, help in some situations anyway. There, I had the opportunity to um, be part of a panel at the case conference at the Colorado Association of School Executives back in the winter of 2016. And the whole one-day workshop was about 
uh, the Claire Davis Act and what this would mean for schools. And schools were very concerned about things like they still don't have a means to enforce parents to take their children to a mental health professional, for instance. And many of our rural schools can't afford to pay for students to go to a mental health professional. And what's a scenario where a school is concerned about a particular student, but they can't require a parent to do something about it? Well, let's say, for instance, that uh, they do a threat assessment on a child and that they decide that um, they can't at school diagnose what might be a mental health concern for that particular student, and they request that the parents take the student to a mental health professional before the student is readmitted to the school. And the um, schools have no power to make a parent do that unless the school itself is willing to pay for that. But in many cases, schools are required to uh, educate a student, so they may be forced to take the student back without having a mental health diagnosis. And, of course, that could pose a danger. Absolutely. Has anyone asked the legislature or the lawmakers who created this bill what they meant by reasonable care? I'm I'm not aware of anyone in um, particular, I do know that the Colorado School District self-insurance pool that insures probably about 90 percent of our school districts has tried to work in this last legislative session to come up with a safe harbor bill that would cover schools if they knew exactly what they could do to um, not lose their governmental immunity, but um, that also stalled. We spoke with Chris Wilderman. He's a school district administrator who until recently headed security for the Boulder Valley Schools. Wilderman says the districts are struggling with this new law and had been waiting for the state committee to help define it. That seems to have stalled, and the school districts were really counting on their work to help us define some of the ambiguity associated with Senate Bill 213. And we should say Senate Bill 213 is the state law that created this new liability for schools. He says the committee stalled. What happened there? Well, the committee spent a lot of time listening to testimony of of lots of different people who have something to do with school safety. But um, it it was it's an interim committee. Our obligation was actually four years, and um, we. The chairman never got us to the point that we made any um, definitive definitions of those terms. How much money would this mean for school districts if they were found liable under the Claire Davis Act? For um, an individual, um, is $350,000 up to $990,000 per incident. So it can be substantial, again, particularly for our rural schools, of which we have 148 of our 178 school districts in Colorado. Is there the potential for this to be financially devastating for a district? I believe so. I believe, unfortunately, it will probably get defined in the courts. And um, the piece of the legislation that I'm most concerned about is the fact that schools can lose their governmental immunity for um, felony sexual assault. I think we're hopefully going to have many fewer murders or um, other assaults on campus. But I'm afraid that sexual assault may be something where a lot of schools find themselves in in trouble. And why is that? Because we do have, um, across the, the country, we have incidents of inappropriate sexual contact between school personnel and students and um, and also student-on-student assaults. And I'm afraid that those happen much more frequently than murder and aggravated assault. What can school districts do to prevent that in terms of sexual assault? 
Well, we hope that they were, are training their folks on what is appropriate behavior, what are the boundaries that should be um, part of their ethical guidelines for their staff. And what else do you recommend to make sure that school districts are covering all of their legal bases? Well, again, I think they need to go back to the Safe Schools Act and make sure that they're um, abiding by all of the pieces that are in that. I think having a trained uh, threat assessment team on campus is extremely important, especially in wake of the Claire Davis Act. And I think having training around adult sexual misconduct and child sexual abuse are important issues also. Can you give me a picture of how those threat assessment teams work? Absolutely. Um, We always recommend that there be at least three members of the threat assessment team, an administrator, oftentimes it's the person who does discipline on campus, a mental health provider, and if there isn't one in the school district, that they um, utilize someone from their community mental health services, and then a law enforcement officer, whether it's a, a campus SRO, school resource officer, or again, someone from their community. And um, then they should have a process that they're all trained on, on how they would do um, interviews for a threat assessment um, procedure. And they gather information on the student at risk. And it's not just the threat assessment part itself that's important, but um, even more important is what is the follow-up afterwards? What kinds of resources can they put in place to support a student who is at risk, whether they be mental health resources, whether they be tutoring help, whatever it may be that would help that student feel more connected and not go down a a path of violence. How might that work with a particular student that a school is concerned about? Well, let's say a student either makes a threat or maybe writes something in an English class that sounds threatening, and um, then that teacher would refer that student to the threat assessment team. The team would... uh, decide who needs to be interviewed, not only the student of concern, hopefully their parents also, as well as any other teachers or coaches or anyone else who has contact with the student and might have information. Probably some of their peers would be also interviewed. And then the threat assessment team sits together and and looks over that information and decides whether or not this is a um, credible threat and maybe immediate danger and they need to contact law enforcement um, quickly, or whether they now need to think about all of the resources that they have to put into place to support this student so that they can be successful and not have to leave school. And at this point, how many districts have put these threat assessment teams together? We're not a compliance agency, so we don't have a list of school districts that have done this. Um, prior to the Claire Davis Act, the School Safety Resource Center, since it opened in 2008, had conducted 20 trainings of school threat assessment teams. Since the Claire Davis Act, we've done an additional 67 trainings on threat assessment. And there had been a threat assessment on the Claire Davis shooter well before that incident. But the experts that looked at the case later were very critical of it. We talked to administrators at a couple of districts. We heard from Chris Wilderman from Boulder a moment ago and Catherine Plog-Martinez from Denver, who said they've spent a lot of time working on how information about a troubled student is shared. Here's Martinez describing what they're doing. The biggest 
shift is that we have added um, flags into our student information system. And those flags are done in a way that doesn't indicate the level of threat or the level of risk and doesn't have information about the um, assessment necessarily, but flags for all of the adults in the building that the threat appraisal or suicide risk review has been done so that a teacher, if they haven't already heard from a mental health professional, can reach out to understand how they might be able to support. There are obviously privacy issues in cases like that. What advice do you give districts to handle those? Well, again, since we're not a legal entity, we usually refer districts back to their legal counsel so that they can make those decisions because our school districts are local control and they have the choice to decide how they want to um, monitor their students of risk. But many school districts are doing what Denver Public Schools are doing and they're adding flags to their student information systems so that they can uh, make sure that other staff on a need-to-know basis can support the student at risk. And from a logistical standpoint, what are some of the issues districts encounter with sharing information like this? Well, one of the things is uh, school districts have been um, hesitant in some cases in the past to pass on information about a threat assessment either uh, within the school district, let's say from a middle school into a high school, or between school districts when students transfer. But schools are understanding that they do have the ability to, to share that information when there's been a student at risk, and it may be putting another school district or school building at risk also. This is obviously a lot of work. Did the legislature put any money into this? No, they did not. And that was one of the complaints that I heard from school folks at the case conference, that they felt like this was a lot of unfunded mandates around school safety. The state started a hotline called Safe to Tell that encourages students to report concerns. It's already helped avert an attack by two girls in Douglas County. And I understand more students are using it over time. What's led more kids to use it? Well, we know that uh, when a student is at risk, oftentimes they will tell other students before they will tell any adults what is going on. We know in about uh, 70% of the cases of uh, school shootings that at least one other student knew about what was happening. So we're very happy to have Safe to Tell in Colorado, and it is the anonymity of the reporter is guaranteed by statute, which makes it something that most of our students are not only aware of but are willing to use. And this law doesn't just apply to activities that go on within school walls. It also applies to school-sponsored activities. So could a district, for instance, be held liable if a student claims he or she was sexually assaulted at a prom? Um, The way I read the law, and again, I'm not an attorney, I assume that, yes, they could be. And that... Those kinds of concerns were also raised by the school people that I spoke to, particularly because the law, they believe, also covers that if a stranger walks on their campus and um, hurts someone uh, under one of those three kinds of crimes, that the school would also be held responsible. I heard some school folks talk about, well, does that mean we shouldn't have basketball games on Friday nights because now we're responsible for everybody who shows up at our school event and what they do or don't do. So it sounds like schools have stepped up their prevention efforts, um, but there's still this question of exactly what they have to do to avoid being held liable if something happens. 
Let's hear again from Chris Wilderman from the Boulder Valley Schools, who says he's afraid nobody's really going to know what that means until somebody takes the school district to court. That's exactly what the concern is, is that that standard is going to be set based on litigation. If you're the first school district to be sued on this, uh, it's not a good position to be in. But that's definitely the concern is that those standards are going to be defined in the courts because school districts are being sued. Is that what it's going to take? Unfortunately, I agree with Chris that I think it will take school districts being taken to court before we really have a good definition of all of the things in the law. So the committee that was supposed to help school districts get safer isn't active right now. Did it do what it set out to do, or is it a problem that the lawmakers leading it aren't in office anymore and the effort is just petered out? Well, I think it's true that the committee has not defined the law, so I I guess that would be a failure of the committee to do what it set out to do originally. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Chris Harms is director of the Colorado School Safety Resource Center, a part of the Colorado Department of Public Safety. We also heard in the story from Chris Wilderman, who headed security at Boulder Valley School District until last week. He's leaving to take a similar job for Adams District 12. And from Catherine Plog-Martinez, who's with the Denver Public Schools. Some Colorado teachers are learning gun skills to serve as armed first responders at their schools. Concealed weapons aren't allowed in Colorado's public schools, but there are exceptions. More than 20 districts allow teachers and staff to carry concealed weapons in school if they get the training. But other educators worry it's adding unnecessary danger to classrooms. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine explains. That sound? That's a seventh grade teacher in action. Nearby, there's a school bus driver. Both take target practice on a sweltering day at a shooting range an hour north of Denver, working on accuracy and efficiency. You're blocking it with your other finger. It's making it harder for you to get your mag out. Okay. Yeah, it's a common problem. Okay. So you Educators see- say they're doing this three-day training with weapons experts to keep children safe. I don't have any children of my own, so these students are my children. Kelly Blake is an agricultural education teacher at Fleming School in Colorado's Eastern Plains. I care about each and every one of them very much. They're all an important part of my life. I want to make sure that they're protected at all times. Get those things up in your workspace. Get those guns up and running. The training comes from the group FASTER. That's short for Faculty Administrator Safety Training and Emergency Response. It's an Ohio-based organization that formed after the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary. But a local Second Amendment group, Coloradans for Civil Liberties, paid the way, giving each participant a $1,000 scholarship for this advanced training. Its founder, Laura Carno, attended a FASTER training in Ohio last year. She met teachers, janitors, and principals. Who said to me things like, I would put my body between bullets and other people's kids. I can't protect them. I can't save them if I'm dead. FBI research shows more cases where a school shooter was stopped by unarmed civilians than by those carrying weapons. There aren't statistics on how often an armed teacher has stopped the shooter. One of the people at this training was law enforcement officer Graham Dunn. He says if educators can be first responders... That could save lives. To be realistic from a police officer perspective, we are simply not going to be there in time. 
That's the driving force for many rural schools that are 30 to 45 minutes away from the nearest law enforcement. They say they can't wait for help. You see me? No. Well, there's two of us who are looking at him. He can't see us. That's the advantage of space and angles. The training stresses tactics, like how to round a corner safely to stay protected from a shooter. It also teaches how to deal with gunshot wounds. And instructors spend time on this question. Do the educators, who work as caretakers, have the right mindset to kill a shooter, especially if it's a student? It's an insane, insane idea. That's the worry of teachers on the other side of the issue. Denver after-school teacher Jackie Shumway is a member of Colorado Ceasefire. Can a teacher live with that they're nervous, they pull the gun out, and that weapon is fired and actually hits the wrong student or ricochets. Here's how a teacher from rural Colorado at the training responds. That is my absolute worst nightmare. We aren't using her name because most school districts do not want anyone to know which teachers are carrying concealed weapons in class. Absolute worst nightmare. And yes, I do understand that. And can I desensitize myself and say, yes, I'll handle this correctly? I hope I can never answer that question for you. She says the training has been intense and she's learned lots of skills. But many urban teachers say teaching educators to be sharpshooters is folly. I was a very brand new beginning teacher when Columbine happened. Denver teacher Rachel Barnes thought after that, tougher laws on guns would be passed. School shootings kept happening. She's now a member of Educators Demand Action, a new gun safety group working to keep guns out of schools. I think all teachers would prefer to be given the tools and the resources to help our students as opposed to being forced to shoot them. Barnes thinks about how her students start her day with her, with hugs. Their head is on my belly, arms are wrapped around my waist, and to have these little hands touching that gun... I just don't see how that would mix well with school. But back at the training, the rural Colorado teacher says she's just learned to position her gun so it doesn't interfere with students' hugs. She's carried a concealed weapon for more than two years. My wardrobe has changed a little bit. I found what conceals well, what doesn't, what's comfortable, so I know what it feels like. Some days it's just like, oh, this was really heavy. This was not a place. And some days, you know, it's okay. It's not so bad, she says, and a small price to pay to protect her 20 students. I'm Jenny Brandine, Colorado Public Radio News. Today we get your feedback in our segment, Loud and Clear. And we heard from a lot of you about our story last week on Englewood business owner Robert Hayes, who supported President Donald Trump in the election. It's part of our series of stories about Coloradans who stand to lose or gain a lot under the new administration. First, we have a correction. In the story, we refer to the Great Recession as beginning in 2008. Corey Kessler of Centennial wrote in to say that was incorrect, and he's right. The Great Recession actually began in December of 2007. It officially ended in 2009. And following that story, we spoke with Tony Galliardi, the head of Colorado's chapter of the National Federation of Independent Business, or NFIB. He says many of his members were disappointed with Obama and with the Affordable Care Act. In particular, he pointed to the requirement that companies with more than 50 full-time workers offer affordable health coverage. Galliardi said that requirements kept his members from expanding their businesses. Jimmy Birds, a small business owner, took issue with that. He says that even with his 15 employees, he can afford to offer generous health insurance benefits. We provide 100% of the premium for each of our employees and are able to make that work. 
in a competitive industry. And I just really think that uh, the idea that that would work against a company that was even bigger is uh, complete malarkey. Joan Van Wyck of Denver wrote in to ask why we were giving the National Federation of Independent Business airtime. Quote, that's like having a focus on the family rep on to discuss how Planned Parenthood works, she writes. At the very least, note that the NFIB is a libertarian, anti-any government regulations group that masquerades as a small business organization and which is in favor of gutting workplace safety, equality, wage and pension regulations that benefit employees. We want to hear from you. Reach us through cprnews.org. Click contact at the top of the page. On Facebook, we're CPR News, and on Twitter, at Colorado Matters. Julia Roberts announced recently she'll star in and produce a film adaptation of a Colorado novel. Roberts will play Kitty Miller, a single woman who, when she goes to sleep, steps into another life. In that version, she's married with triplets. And the question becomes, which life is real? The novel's called The Bookseller. When it came out, my colleague Ryan Warner talked with author Cynthia Swanson in front of an audience at Denver's Tattered Cover Bookstore. How did the idea for this novel come to you? The idea for this novel came to me quite suddenly one day. I was at the gym at the YMCA. I was working out and sweating away on the Stairmaster machine, and my three-year-old was in the child care area, and my older kids were in school. And all of a sudden, I started thinking, how in the world did I end up being somebody who at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning is working out instead of off at the job that I'd had before. I, was a, I, I had a freelance career as a marketing and technical writer, and I had a little house that I lived in alone. And my life changed very suddenly when I got married, and I had kids quite quickly within a few years. And it got me to thinking about how our lives do change very quickly on just small moments that could have happened or could have not happened. Did you question your own identity for a moment? I did, and that's what made me start thinking about a protagonist who might do that, who might just be thinking sometimes, is this really my life? How did this become my life? And maybe it's not really my life. Maybe I still have that little house somewhere. Hmm. Who knows? Which makes me wonder if your husband has read the book and if he thinks... (laughs) This is somehow questioning the underpinnings of the relationship and the family and the marriage. I worried about that when he read. He read. He's read every draft of the book, and I very much worried about that when he read the first draft. <laughs> and early on, you kind of wonder about the character in the married life who's sort of pining for the single life. Mm. But your husband uh, took it well. He did. Okay. He did. He's a, he's a very good-humored man. <laughs> and so you were exercising when this idea comes to you. Is that something you immediately write down, make a mental note of? Did you begin writing that same day? Years ago, a friend gave me some advice about writing. She said, if you have a good idea, swallow it. And if it's still good, it'll stick around. You don't have to write it down. You don't have to... If, if it's really good enough, it will stay and it will be in your mind and it will be in your heart and it will keep coming back. And that's exactly what happened. That was maybe right before Christmas. And I didn't do any writing until January, but I kept, it did keep coming back and I kept thinking about it over that holiday season. That could be a terrifying approach because I feel like I've lost really good ideas <laughs> that I haven't written down. Then maybe they weren't that good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
So how does it affect the people around Kitty and around Catherine that she or they keep slipping in and out of consciousness, really? Because this change in lives happens usually through sleep. It seems that sleep is the portal. Correct. Sleep is the portal. And so it doesn't really affect people as much quite in her kitty life because she's single. She lives alone with her cat who doesn't mind whether she's waking up from terrifying dreams or not. In in her Catherine life, her husband is concerned and kind of wondering what's going on and why she's slipping in and out of memory. Again, not to give away too much of the book, but he also has some understanding of why that might be happening to her based on some of the things that are going on in their life at the time. As we said, this book explores a question I think we've all asked ourselves at one point or another, what would my life be like if I had made different choices? Mm -hmm. What did you learn about that question writing this book? I... It, it gives you a chance to explore those both big and small. You start thinking about the little things like that, the chance, what if I'd turned left instead of right? What if I'd answered that email instead of sending it to the trash folder? What if I'd taken the biology class instead of the history class? Oh, there's all those little things like that that you think about. And I think writing a book like this does make you consider those in your own life and in other people's lives and how those cascade. That's fascinating because, of course, you could drive yourself crazy thinking about all those tiny details. Right. Right. If I hadn't opened that email, would my Mm -hmm. day have transformed? Right, right. You could drive yourself crazy, and I don't think it's worth doing that for anybody. (laughs) I wouldn't advise it, but it does make for good fiction, and it it makes for good consideration of your own life. To quote from the book, there is no such thing as the perfect life. It's not perfect here. It's not perfect there. Have you come to embrace that yourself fully, do you think? I think I have. My husband might have to back me up on that. (laughs) But I do try to embrace that. One of the things I say to my kids a lot is, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. And they they know that (laughs) I say that a lot. And it's true. It's it's your life. It's going to turn out the way it's going to turn out. You can't control everything. There's very, very little that you can control. You get what you get. And you don't throw a fit. And you don't Anybody throw in the fit. audience is nodding because they've said that to the, that has kids. <laughs> they've what, said that. Yeah, what's the scenario when you say that to your kids as advice? Um, there's, there are meals involved in that. <laughs> there are, it's not fair, he got that and I didn't involved in that. <laughs> so there's a lot of scenarios. Is this book autobiographical in any way? No, <laughs> it's not. It, it, other than the idea of those slip moments and my slip moments are nothing like the the main characters, but no, otherwise I wouldn't say that it is. And, and probably also I get a lot of criticism that the husband character is too perfect. And anybody who knows my husband will tell you that my husband is pretty perfect. So, (laughs) (laughs) but other than that, as far as the circumstances, no, it's not autobiographical. Catherine's husband, we should say, is Lars. Lars, yes. And, and he he is sort of perfect. He's a (laughs) successful architect. He's good looking. He's kind. He's a good father. Mm-hmm. Why write him that way? Because I think she had so many other things going on in that life that were difficult. That if I'd added in a stressful marriage, I think it would have been too much. No matter how bad things got, she knew she had that solid marriage. And, you know, I think about marriage and 
50% of marriages fail. Well, that means 50% succeed, which means there must be some good spouses out there. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, maybe he's a little bit unrealistic, but I don't think necessarily. I know some great guys and, and some pretty good husbands out there besides my own. So. Well, one of the difficulties that we, I think we can give away is that one of Catherine's triplets, Michael, has autism. Correct. And this is at a time when not much is known about autism, certainly not much that's accurate. Right. What are the beliefs about autism at that time, and how does that affect Catherine, your married character? It affects her a great deal. Uh, At that time in history, autism was just beginning to be studied, and not too many people were diagnosed with it. But those that were, there tended to be blame that went on the parents, particularly the mother. A lot of experts in the field thought that autism was due to what they called the refrigerator mother theory, which is that, you know, mothers that were not attached to their children. So she faced an enormous amount of guilt, the character did. I hope that parents of autistic kids today can read the book and and realize that we've come a long way. I mean, there's still a long way to go, but we've come a long way, and at least there's not that kind of guilt on parents, I hope. There should, certainly shouldn't be. And I hope there's that people don't feel that anymore. But you can imagine that a mother who's being blamed for her child's troubles might think about escaping that life or might think about an easier path. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How did you decide to include the autism plotline? I think that, again, she needed to have some conflicts in that life. It, 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 it was not a perfect life and that gets uncovered in layers. And when, when the Catherine life begins, she doesn't even realize that she has triplets. She thinks she's got two kids. When she first is going into these dreams of being Catherine, she is introduced to the two other children, a boy and a girl. One is named Mitch, and the other one is named Missy. And and they're adorable, and they're cute, and they're usually really well-behaved. And she thinks, oh, this is what's so hard about having kids. I've got this down pat. And then Michael shows up, and she's completely floored that she didn't even realize that she had this other child. So he's not well enough to be in school. Right. And he's, he's, he's very difficult to manage. Right. And so how did you decide on autism? Was, was that something that had been in your family or that you had had experience with? Without giving away too much, there is someone very dear to me who, um, was, is a, a little bit older than Catherine's children. And, was probably undiagnosed autistic, um, but definitely showed characteristics of that. And I can remember that from my childhood, both this person that I was close to and also her mother and the guilt. The central mystery in this book is which life is real, Mm -hmm. one, the other, both. And we're not going to give away that answer, but I do want to ask around it. Did you feel that you had to resolve that I didn't initially think I needed to resolve. Sean, Sean is smiling at me <laughs> because this is your what, editor. <laughs> this is this is my editor here in Denver. Because when I first wrote this book, it was much more ambiguous, and that was one of the main suggestions that Shauna made. Was she said, "I think that it's going to be a more satisfying read if there's more of a resolution to that." And so I wrote it that way and tested it out, and I ended up agreeing with her. Really, yeah. you came around to that. Why did you like in the beginning? the more ambiguous ending. I, I'm, I wonder if that's just sort of a, a rookie debut novelist. Huh. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny because I've read a few um, alternate reality books since that don't resolve, and I found that I really don't like them as much. And maybe it's because I'm attached to my own book, obviously. 
but I'm, I find that I'm not quite as satisfied if I have to make up the ending. I, I like the author to, I mean, it's their book. They should, they should be able to tell me what happened. <laughs> you know, if they can't tell me what happened, why should I have to decide? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the, the setting of the book, the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Why, why then? Why isn't this a, a thoroughly contemporary story? I originally started writing this book as a contemporary book. I got about 25% into a first draft, and I realized at that point that it really did not work as a contemporary story because a modern-day character, a modern-day Kitty who was having these dreams of another life, there are there are a lot of things that she would do. There's a lot of research available to us now at our fingertips and at our computers. I mean, she would have been Googling things. There would have been a lot of ways that she could have discovered what was going on. I think it added a level of mystery, and it slowed down the pace in that she, if she wanted to do research, she had to do what some people in this audience remember doing and I remember doing, which is go to the library. And she, there's a scene where she does that. She goes to the library, and she asks for the microfilm of a particular time in history that she wants to look back on 10 years ago and see if there'd be some keys that would help her figure out what's going on. She, she's trying to unlock her own mystery. Yeah. Which, which life is real? Who right, am I? Right, yeah. yeah. Kitty is trying to unlock that, and she's trying to figure out what might have happened, and she, she runs across some things that explain that. So it, it would have been a very, very different setting, I think, and she would have been a lot more cynical. You know, it makes me think that in some ways the internet and technology have ruined aspects of storytelling. You could not have an affair to remember right. today yeah, because absolutely. someone would just call, you know, pick up their iPhone and be right. like, I'm at the top of the... Right. <laughs> exactly. Of the building. Exactly. You know? <laughs> there are a lot of mischances that would, that would not be mischances anymore. <laughs> yeah. There is more to the, the 1960s setting than just the card catalog system. Um, <laughs> suburbanization mm-hmm. right. is a strong theme in this book. Right. So Kitty... The single character co-owns a bookstore with a woman named Frida, and their bookstore is struggling, Yes, in part because there is uh, what we've come to describe as white flight to the suburbs, Mm -hmm. you know, malls opening up, and here Mm -hmm. they have this little bookstore on Pearl Street, which is a place everyone wants to live now. Right, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. I knew Denverites would know exactly what I'm talking about when they read this book, and it's set in Old South Pearl is where the bookstore is, which... When she first started it, they were doing very well. There was a streetcar line that ran along there, so they were getting some streetcar traffic. They were getting people coming in out of work. There was a theater, the Vogue Theater. Uh, so it was, a, it was a fairly successful little commercial area in the 40s and 50s, but then the bus lines came along and the streetcar went away, and it, it started going into a, a lot of decline, and people started moving to the suburbs. One thing that's really fun for local readers is to come across names and places from Denver's past. Uh, the May DNF department store on the 16th Street Mall, of which we have the tower remaining. Right. And get this, the Celebrity Fun Center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on, they all remember. <laughs> this is on Colorado Boulevard, owned by Walt Disney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's roughly where Whole Foods and Home Depot are now. Yep. Yep. And I, I was They're doing... They're nodding. That means I got it right. Good. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people who remember this place. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And uh, I just did a little research, and I just want to quote a blog called This Used to Be Denver. Uh, Celebrity Sports Center was, quote, one of Walt Disney's great experiments in expansion. Open in 1960 as Celebrity Lanes, Disney offered an 80-lane bowling alley, a massive indoor swimming pool, restaurants, and a health salon... 
The name was a nod to initial ownership, including Jack Benny, George Burns, Gracie Allen, Burl Ives, Bing Crosby, Art Linkletter, and Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it sound fun? I wish yeah. I was still there. <laughs> More fun than the Home Depot so that's totally. there now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Did this improve your own sense of place, looking up, you know, what Denver looked like in the 60s? Absolutely. It was so fun. That was probably one of my favorite parts of writing this book, was doing that research and going down to the the library downtown. I spent a lot of time in the Western history section and looked at old pictures and maps and anything that I could find. I, I did a lot more research there than online. You can find things like that online, and I did a lot of that initially. And usually that would lead me to questions that I felt like I needed to go actually talk to somebody or look at micro microfilm was really good. But looking at the newspapers and just seeing the pictures and seeing what was going on, especially in very, this book takes place on very specific days. I had a cheat sheet of every, of the actual date that each chapter happened on because I, somebody's going to slam me now after they read the book and say you were wrong, but I really tried to get everything as close to right as I could. So I, I looked up the microfilm of what was in the newspaper on particular days that she might have been looking at the newspaper and seeing that. And And so humming in the background, for instance, is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, yes, And the death of Patsy Cline. Right, yeah. So for someone who does a fair amount of research for my job, you'd think I'd know this. So there's still microfiche in film. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. The machine is faster now. When, when, When Kitty goes down the library, she has to do the hand crank that probably a lot of us remember from when we were kids. Then it doesn't have that anymore. There's a button and it goes really fast. So you can go past your page Way too quickly. Because not all, of, <laughs> not all of that has been digitized. Very little of it has, at least at, least at our library downtown. But they have, um, the post goes back, I don't know, at least 100 years. And the Rocky goes back pretty far, too. So you said you had a cheat sheet. <laughs> yep. And it was of dates. It was, mm-hmm. how, did, how did that work? Well, at first I didn't have it. And then I realized I needed to make sure I was being accurate about that. So each chapter... The book alternates between Kitty and Catherine per chapter. So in the in the Kitty life, it's October of 1962. And in the Catherine life, it's February and a little bit into March of 63, so a few months later. And so I had to go back and forth between those two times. But I had to make sure that things that were happening were happening accurately. There's a scene where they go to a party and they come home and the babysitter's watching Saturday Night at the Movies. So I had to look up what movie was actually playing at that, on that oh, particular like, night. Oh, like to the TV guide <laughs> yeah, of, of right, that yeah. in the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, that I could find online, and I did. Hopefully that's accurate. <laughs> I had to guess. <laughs> How do you find stretches of time to write when you're a mother of two? <laughs> I'm actually a mother of three. Of three? <laughs> I've underestimated you. <laughs> It was very difficult when they were younger. At first, I wasn't getting anything done. I, I had this great idea, and I would you know, work on it every once a week or something like that. And it's, this is ridiculous. I can't write at night. I've never been able to work at night. I just I, I collapse at night and you know, surf the Internet. That's what I do. So <laughs> I don't write. But I, I came across an article by Gretchen Rubin who writes – she wrote the book The Happiness Project, and, and she writes about a lot of these kinds of issues, time management – and she had an article about exercise and how she was going to exercise every day for 15 minutes. Because, and no excuses, no days off. Because she said, if I, can ex- you know, if I say I'm going to do it for 15 minutes 
then that generally turns into a half hour or 45 minutes or whatever it is. I've made the time because I've made the commitment and I haven't given myself the chance to slack off. And I was pretty good about exercising, but I was not good about writing. But I, I applied that same advice to writing and I started writing it in 15 minute increments. And there were really literally days where that's all I got was 15 minutes. I remember one time my husband walked in with a guest, a cousin of his who was visiting in the middle of my 15 minutes. And I just about cried. I was like, I've got my 15 minutes. You need to leave. This is it. So I really, I had to sometimes write. Luckily, I write really quickly. So I can knock out a page or two in 15 minutes. And so I was able to get that first draft done by sometimes doing those 15 to 45 minute increments. So you just, you find pockets where you could. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Denver author Cynthia Swanson wrote The Bookseller, which will soon become a feature film starring and produced by Julia Roberts. Swanson spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner in 2015 at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver. Finally today, a song for the 4th of July. The infamous String Dusters are an acoustic ensemble blending traditional bluegrass and improvisational jamgrass. The quintet formed in 2006 in Nashville, and the band members now mostly live in Colorado. Their summer tour will include an appearance at Rocky Grass in Lyons this month, and the infamous String Dusters 2015 album of covers called Undercover includes this take on Tom Pen- American Girl. infamous string dusters covering Tom Petty's American Girl. That's our show for today. Thanks to Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Rachel Estabrook, and Michelle Fulcher. Enjoy the fourth tomorrow. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>